Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you have any questions that you want answers to, I would love for you to send them in uh, to us here at the, at the church. There's two ways you can send us those questions. One is via email. The email address is infogrove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line, it's a podcast question, uh, or it's a Let's Read the Bible podcast question, or a question for Evan and Aaron, however that works for you. That way we, it comes directly to us. Uh, The second way you can send us those questions is a direct message on the Grove Church Facebook page. We are the Grove Church in Washington State, and we'd love for you to DM us there uh, so that way we can take some time as much as we can week over week in our podcast episodes to answer some questions. And today we're actually, we're getting back to answering questions because we took a couple weeks off just because of busyness. And then last week was just the the episode was going to be way too long to do questions. And that's because we wrapped up Evren's life work right now in the book of Job. So he didn't write the book of Job, but it's he's where he spent the bulk of his life the last several years. Bulk, so. bulk of my life. Yeah. The last couple of years, I enjoyed it a lot. So, but now listen, listener, we are moving on to the book of Deuteronomy, which is, uh, you know, it's also a good book, but I don't have quite as much to say on this one, I suppose. Uh, but it's, yeah, that maybe that, that was a... It sounds so bad. Yeah, that was a poor setup. Here's hey, the You deal. know what? I just don't have anything to say about Deuteronomy, so go read it. No, I'm just kidding. Go read it on he, your own. He hasn't deep dived into the book of Deuteronomy yet. That's so true. that's what it comes down to. Well, I had, a t- I had a teacher in eighth grade who, um, this is a total tangent, but um, she, we would come into class and we would have worksheets on our desks and that was it. Like it was just, she just kind of sat down in the corner and didn't say anything. And I didn't like eighth grade me didn't realize that this was like, um, like a fireable offense that was happening. I was just like, oh, this is kind of weird. And like halfway through the year, but like, anyway, again, super tangible. That just kind of reminded me of, that's not what we're going to do. That's what Evan's going to do right now. So just open your book to Deuteronomy. Yeah. You're going to read read chapters one through 34. Answer the questions, you'll be fine. All right, sorry, (laughs) listeners. Deuteronomy is great. Uh, We're going to talk about today, we're going to wrap up the Pentateuch. So the first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, oh my gosh, I I struggle with this one so much, Deuteronomy. Really? I do. I don't know why. It's that in Gethsemane. That's the two that like trip me up all the time. And here's the thing I love about Deuteronomy is you've made it through Leviticus and Numbers. Mm -hmm. And Deuteronomy reads so much easier. (laughs) Let's just be honest. Well, and we're, we're really in... We're in narrative street for a long time in the Old Testament now. So we're, we're getting past the law and we're moving into like from Joshua pretty much all the way to Psalms. We're going to, and we've already read like a bunch of the Psalms. It's so true. we're going to be really just talking about history, which There's is There's still a bunch more left of the Psalms, but yes. Yeah. All right. Anyway, sorry, listeners, we keep delaying. The book of Deuteronomy is the Deuteronomy is the final book of the Pentateuch, and it really works as a transition book from the first generation of Israelites who were freed from slavery in Egypt to the next generation that will actually take hold of the land that Yahweh had promised them. So remember in Numbers, we talked about how there were the two great numberings. There was the first one that was that first generation, and there was the second one after a lot of them had died off. Deuteronomy is the... uh, is the transition piece where Moses is still alive. There's still a few people from the older generation who are left. And it's a series of sermons that Moses delivers to his people, uh, reminding them of the past, you know, where they've been, reminding of where they are currently, and then finally extolling them for what um, is eventually going to come as they go into the promised land. So really cool. Uh, the tradition holds that it's mostly written by Moses, except the part where he dies, because that would be <laughs> that would be pretty hard for him to write. So uh, you'll notice at the very end, it goes, and then after this, Moses went up, and so it's pretty easy to spot where the... Uh, it's a pretty clear break. 
Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, in, in Lord of the Rings, when Bilbo finishes up his book and then Frodo finishes it and he's like, he gives it to Sam, you know, hey, just write the last little epilogue on the end of it here. <laughs> so same, same exact thing, listeners. Um, just kidding. A little bit different. Uh, but Hinson and Yates, and they're the ones who authored um, the Essence of the Old Testament, a survey, which is a book that we really like and we use here. They offer an outline that's really helpful, and that's what we're going to use today. Uh, they break Deuteronomy down into three sections. The past, which is a review of Israel's history, and that's chapters one through four. The present, a record of Israel's laws, which is chapters five through 26, and also the bulk of the book. And then the future, which is the revelation of Israel's destiny, which is chapters 27 through 34. This week, we are in uh, chapters one through 14. So we're going to be focused, we're going to do the whole past and then like a good chunk of the present. And then next week, we're going to continue on with that present section as well. All right. So in the past, and by that, I mean chapters one through four, uh, this section is a sermon that Moses gives to the people, giving them a recap of where they've been. He starts off when Israel is commanded to leave Horeb, which is the region where Mount Sinai is. If you remember, you know, some good things happened there. That was cool. Like, you know, the Ten Commandments and seeing God's presence. Um, also, they worshiped a golden calf. <laughs> yeah. So, you and, know, and a couple bad things. Yeah, you know, just the whole like, where did this calf come from? Like, well, Mo- I don't know, Moses. This fire. is crazy. And then Moses made them drink it, yep. which is just, I, I mean, of all the things Moses does, that might be my favorite one. <laughs> uh, he then moves on to Kadesh, which is where the first generation that is mostly gone now refused to enter the land. So, if you remember, you know, Yahweh is like, all right, this golden calf thing. Not cool, guys, but let's 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 move on. And they go, and he's like, all right, behold, the land which I have promised you. Go send spies in. And they spy it out. And then everyone's like, you know, oh, we are but we are but we grasshoppers in this in the sight of them. And that's how I imagine that they sounded. And then it was just uh Caleb and Joshua are really the only ones who stood up for yeah, basically saying, Hey, you hey, remember how the Red Sea parted? Yeah, and we yeah. walked. Remember through that it? moment? I yeah, I also saw what was this? Where was I listening to? It might have been on the Bible Project, but they're talking about how the Red Sea actually translates to the Sea of Reeds. And so it hmm. might have been a different body of water. So still really cool, but it might have been, I think it's, if I remember correctly, the Sea of Reeds is like the smaller thing right above the Red Sea. Um, but anyway, sorry, that's a whole, I don't know. That's a whole nother thing. That was a side, that was a side tangent. Sorry, listeners. I've been, you know, my mind's everywhere today. Uh, and then finally, there's a recap of all their wilderness years that they have been living through, which, you know, that's just a good time for all, obviously just wandering in the wilderness, waiting to die. That was kind of what this generation, uh, what that first generation went through also what they deserved. Cause come on guys, let's just, let's have a little bit of faith here. Well, I think it's the crazy thing about it is they, they traveled to on to being on the verge of the promised land. Yeah. And then because of their rebellion, God's like, Nope, don't like that. Turned them around. Well, I think it <laughs> brought them back out into the wilderness. I think in popular culture, we imagine that, they get to like the desert and then in the desert, God is like, all right, we're done. And you stay there. No, they got to, you're like you said, they got to the border. <laughs> They're yep. looking at the promised land and they refuse to go in. And that's when Yahweh is like, all right, I've had, <clears throat> I've had enough of this. Just get, get out, get out of here. Wait for your kids to grow up. Yep. Uh, and then we get this, I, I thought this was really interesting. We get this really introspective passage where Moses play, pleads with the people to obey Yahweh. And so this is in chapter three, starting in verse 23. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord is angry with me. 
because of because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, "Enough from you. Do not speak to me again of this matter. Go up to the town, go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look with look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of the people, and he shall put them into possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite of Beth Peor. So there you go. Moses is kind of telling like his own personal interactions with God about the fact that he would not be allowed to go into the promised land. Um, I guess he does kind of play with the Israelites there. He says specifically because of you and because you didn't listen to me. Because like, you know, Moses, you also kind of messed up. Oh, that's times, exactly. But. I was like, I was going to say Moses, part of it is like the people drove Moses to, to react. Uh, but Moses, Moses made decisions that was not an obedience and alignment with right. what God said. And that's what caused the, um, the, the punishment of not being able to go into the promised land. He got to see it, but not go into it. Yeah, it is. And it is a really powerful picture that one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel um, doesn't actually get to complete his mission. And we also see that a little bit with David, I think, where yeah, I would it, agree. It kind of a parallel where he doesn't get to build the temple and Israel's golden age really begins and and ends with uh, with his son Solomon, and then all of a sudden, yeah, it's kind of two great titans mm-hmm. of the Old Testament, whose heirs would be the ones to actually fulfill the fullness of what God would do through them. Yeah. So yeah, kind of kind of interesting there. Well, and Joshua, just for clarity, is not Moses's heir, but is his second in command, and so that was part of it. So. Right, heir in the heir in the sense of leading the people of Israel, yes. but not like his son or anything. Yeah. So the Moses sons, we just don't really hear about. Nope. They're, not at all. they're there and then they're just, and they're gone. Uh, all right. So starting in chapter five, Moses reminds the people of their present situation. So we're no longer focusing on the past. We're talking about where we are right now. Uh, chapter six gives us the Shema, which is one of the most famous passages, passages in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. If you're not, if you don't know what that is, let me read it. And then let's see if you recognize it. It's a uh, hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with all and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. So the Shema is that specifically, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. You'll, you'll, you might recognize that as when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He lists off this. And then right after he goes, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. So kind of a cool deal. There. Well, and it's, it's not just one of the famous passages throughout Deuteronomy, but it's also, I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the primary passages that all of Israel refers to and leans on. And so when Jesus is making the declaration, this is the greatest commandment, he's drawing all of Israel back to this moment um, and, 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 adds a whole lot more weight and authority to it. And it, it almost aligns um, God's people with what Jesus is saying in, in that moment as well. So it is this, this incredible, beautiful circle of fulfillment um, and reestablishing much as what Jesus did in, early in his ministry to begin with. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's a very, very, it's a very, I would say it's a pillar passage uh, for the people of Israel. Oh, for sure. And I think so much of the rest of the book is Moses focusing on, you can almost read it as, Kind of an Ecclesiastes where it's an older man who's made mistakes and he's pleading with the younger generation to not make the hmm. same mistakes. Uh, Moses, Moses is very much doing this where in chapter seven, 
He begins to remind the people of Israel of who they are um, and who they are called to be. Mm-hmm. They're, in other words, they are set apart by Yahweh. They are Yahweh's chosen people, the nation of Israel. And because of this, they must live set apart lives. So it's not just a one-way thing where God's like, you are my chosen people. No, they have to live the chosen lives that God would have for them. Uh, and so like in chapter seven, we get this passage starting in verse 17. It says, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dis- dispossess them? Which again, that's the that's the sin that led to that generation yeah. being kicked out or not being allowed to enter, I should say. Uh, you shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to the Pharaoh and to all of Egypt pause there for a second. We, we, the Pharaoh in Egypt is the most powerful nation in that region. And it's not close. Like the only nation in the world that was relatively close in power was probably ancient China. And they wouldn't have even known about that. So yeah. it's, it's just one of those things where um, when he says what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt, we really don't have in our modern sense an idea of what that means. Because I mean, the US is the most powerful country in the world, but even then the the um, the monopoly of power that the United States has today is nowhere near what Egypt would have exercised yeah. in that region at the time. Uh, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by, with, by which the Lord your God brought you out, so will the Lord your God do to all of the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them, and those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. Which I love, I love that line of like, hey, listen, we're not going to take them all out because, you know, desolation is going to be hard to rule over too. Uh, but the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand up to you until you have destroyed them, stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them and take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and abhor it for it is devotion to destruction. What I like about that passage too, is it it kind of handles the two great apostasies of Israel that Mm -hmm. got them banned out, right? Because the first part is you will not be afraid. Remember what God did. So don't be like your fathers who turned away. And the second one is don't be ensnared by the gold and the silver and the false images of the gods. Don't bring them into your homes. Don't worship them. You're going to burn those. You're going to get rid of them and you're going to worship me instead. So it kind of, and by me, I mean. Which they don't do. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's see how that goes for him, Colin. But, you know, I think this, this generation, they do, they do pretty well. And that's kind of the history of Israel is they have really bad generations followed by some good ones and then immediately followed by some bad ones again. But. And that's human history too. I would even go as yeah. far as saying that, right? We see this, the cycles of, of turning to God, running to God throughout human history. You see the cycles of turning away from God and rebelling. Uh, I think that's just normal. But I do, I mean, I think it's, I mean, there's a couple of things that always come to mind when I think of like Israel's uh, conquering of the lands he gave or God gave them. Um, and always the questions that I remember pop up every now and then is just the idea of like, well, why didn't they just take out the people? Why didn't they just like destroy everything? Um, but there is the reminder, like you don't do that. You're mm-hmm. not you're not to kill them all off. You're you're to do it 
intentionally and strategically, um, because then you're not going to be able to rule the land as, as, as you would originally need to. And so there is this very methodical, intentional and strategic way that God is leading and wanting to lead his people. Um, but it does, it comes down to how do they follow suit and right. we will see and continue to see that they don't do it well. Yeah. More on Entirely, that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, more on that after Joshua, I suppose. Although yeah. there is some of that in there Joshua There is some of that too. in Joshua, yeah. Uh, anyway, so the rest of these chapters in Deuteronomy that we're reading this week, they're really devoted to Moses reminding the people of Israel who they are and reminding them of the sins of the previous generation so that they are not repeated. Um, there's this section about, you know, the golden calf, If in case we haven't talked about it enough today, there's going to be a whole thing on that. Um, also, the replacement of the Ten Commandment tablets, which is pretty interesting. And then we see another reiteration of the law that the Israelites were to live by, including where Yahweh was to be worshipped, a warning against idolatry, some dietary laws, and also the tithe. So we're going to get, and that's where we're going to spend a lot of next week as well, as kind of a reiteration of the law. Or in other words, because God has set us apart, here is how we are to set ourselves apart from the nation. So pretty cool idea there. Uh, Aaron, we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians. But before we do, we just want to say, you know, hey, listeners. If you haven't had a chance to leave us a five-star review, go ahead and do that. Or a written review. Or a written review. Yeah, those are always nice too. Because if you leave us a written one, we'll read it on the podcast just because that's the type of guys that we are. Um, (laughs) It sounds so like, it's like, you're going to get it read and shout it out. Um, But no, like we just like to be able to read and share those, the reviews and how everyone's being encouraged or enjoying or uh, just a part of the community. I think that's part of the fun of, of reading the reviews. It's not just about giving you shout outs, um, but it is about uh, just sharing with the community. Hey, we're all in this together and it's encouraging and challenging each other. And you, if you send in questions, you're part of that. Like you're helping engage and and help the, the, the community continue to grow and lean in together. So I uh, would love for you to do that. Give us a five star, whether Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. Uh, so we'd love for you to do that. We've even had some different reviewers jump on Apple Podcasts just to leave us a written review before they left Apple Podcasts to go to Spotify. So uh, shout out to you guys. Thank you for doing that. And we look forward to reading some more reviews in the coming weeks. Uh, we're going to, like Evan said, we're going to jump into first Corinthians this week as well. Uh, and over the next two weeks, we'll actually be covering the entirety of the book of first Corinthians. Um, and we'll see that this is a two part or not a two part, but each, each book of Corinthians is a first and second Corinthians in the new Testament. Um, the, these are very different dynamics of Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, which I think is really profound and interesting. Um, and so today we're just going to introduce, First Corinthians, as well as uh, cover the first, I think it's 14 chapters. Uh, no, sorry, the first seven chapters, because uh, there's 16 chapters in total. So uh, almost, almost half. Almost we half. We were this close. I know, right? Uh, and so, and just, just, like, just so you know, um, that's what we'll cover. And then next week, we'll cover the rest of the book. Um, but the author is Paul, Paul of First Corinthians. And there's no real good reason to doubt this. Um, there's not really any good evidence to suggest it was someone different. Um, and uh, almost, I would say 99% of, of scholars all agree it's Paul. Uh, there's always that one exception uh, that likes to throw out a different idea. That that fifth dentist, if you will, who doesn't recommend. <laughs> exactly. Um, so the, the author is Paul. Uh, he's writing to a church that he established um, on one of his missionary journeys. Um, he spent, I mean, a good chunk of time of his life there to establish it. And then it has a very deep love and uh, father's heart, which you'll see come out in his letters and how he writes. Sometimes he writes very strongly. Other times you see him wrestle with this love and compassion. Uh, And so we'll kind of get into that as we work through this. Um, Corinth, just so you know, is a very rich, established, influential city. It's very cutting edge for its time. Uh, And 
because of that, it's facing very uh, many, many, many cultural challenges uh, that we can see some parallels to us today. Uh, I know a lot of scholars like to, to compare today, modern day, to some of the, the things that happened in Corinth, and there's a lot of parallels there. Um, I love what N.T. Wright states in his book, The New Testament and Its World, and I'm just going to read this quote from him. Uh, so if you're listening, N.T., thank you so much. Um, <laughs> because he's listened to our podcast. Uh, it says this, if there was a church that caused Paul to pull his hair out and make him age before his time, it was probably the church of God at Corinth. It's not the official title of the church, but it's just a modern day reference. Uh, but it was probably the church at Corinth. Paul spent an initial 18 months with the believers there, establishing their community. Then he made at least two further visits to Corinth, the first of which did not go well, which we see his response in 2 Corinthians. Spoiler. That'll be a good time. It's, dude, it's a, I, I just read it. It's pretty, it's pretty remarkable that I would never pick up on it until I read through it. So, um, so his first trip didn't go well. Uh, we see that Paul wrote four letter, letters total, not that we have them, but that we he has allusions to writing two other letters. Um, so we see that he wrote four, two of which are in the New Testament, and all of them, all four of the letters are dealing with problems in the church, um, which is really fun. And problems. They're, really, they're really good problems. They're re- that, absolutely, they're really good. Uh, and so here's some of the problems that are listed out for us. There's deep divisions among the, the church. There's sexual immoralities. There's, sus- there's uh, the suspicion about Paul and his motives. Uh, these visits from what he, Paul calls a super apostle, which we don't ever really ever know or identify who they are, but he calls them super apostles. Yeah, and he calls them that because they boast on their own credentials and in turn belittle Paul's. Um, and so that's that's a tension he's wrestling with. The, uh, we see that the church experienced social, spiritual, and sexual problems, uh, pitting members against one another uh, and the congregation against Paul. Uh, and then, but we see Paul write with a father's heart. He's grieved and broken at times. He's frustrated and angry at times. Um, but it's oftentimes one that is always rooted in compassion and love, uh, which he constantly affirmed his love for the Corinthians. Uh, and so this is the context with which Paul's writing to. This is the, the the church that he's writing to. I would suggest, and I've said this word before, said it this way before when I'm either I'm speaking through the book of Corinthians or whatever, it's, it's kind of a dysfunctional church, but most churches are, yeah. unfortunately. And... And so there is some grace that we have to offer to the people of Corinth. Um, the culture, the, the, the manipulation of, of half-truths of these super apostles' teachings to manipulate and dissuade their trust in Paul's authority, which then questions the message he spoke. Um, these are all very big and, and, and powerful things uh, that are influencing what Paul is addressing. Well, I think there's also the layer of co- the, the struggles of the church in Corinth are very, very just in-your-face out in the open. Yes. Um, but I, I'm always reminded of, and like for, for me, one of the scariest churches in the New Testament is the church in Ephesus where mm-hmm. they're doing really hot. And then when you get to Revelation, what's being said about them? It's like, hey, look, you're doing pretty much everything right, um, but you don't have love and, you for, and you've forgotten the love of the gospel. And so I think it, like, I think it is a good word for you to say that um, every church has dysfunction. They're a little bit different. And so while Corinth has this that they're dealing with, and it's kind of like out in the open and Paul is addressing it. Um, that doesn't mean that the other churches who are doing better don't have their own issues that eventually have to get work, worked through as we see as time goes on. So. Yeah, exactly. And, and the the irony to that statement, <clears throat> excuse me, is um, we'll get into this next week, but 1 Corinthians 13 is referred to as the love chapter. But that's Paul's exact point is you're doing all these things, you have all of these gifts, but you have not love. And if you have not love, you're just noise, distraction, and 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 a hindrance to the gospel moving a, forward. A clinging gong, if you will. Yeah, that's a. I should quote that. Um, but anyway, so we're going to jump into the first chapter seven or ch- first chap seven chapters today. 
wow, a little bit, I should finish my coffee. Um, and so just breaking it down for us, I, I broke it down in four different categories. One is the greeting or introduction. Uh, we see this breakdown in uh, the actually the essence of the New Testament um, from Gutierrez and Towns, uh, another one of those books that we oftentimes refer to. It's a great book. Good times. Great survey of the, of the New Testament. Um, we see Paul addressing divisions in the church from chapter one, verse 10 to chapter four, verse 21. Uh, we see then the, the shift to a conversation where Paul has, has gotten reports of sexual morality in the church, as well as legal trouble. Um, so he takes time to address those. And it really is Paul taking time to address the problems that he's seeing and hearing about in the church. Uh, and then chapter seven, uh, starts us, we'll start into uh, three issues that Paul sees and is, is addressed from questions from the Corinthians. So in essence, he received a report back, a Corinthian letter back to him, and it asked him a bunch of questions. And so he addresses uh, three different topics and questions that have come his way in chapter seven initiates and starts that. So we'll get into the first part of that uh, this week. And the next week, we'll wrap up that section as we wrap up the book. Um, so just kind of working through this for a few moments, you know, when it comes to the greeting introduction, um, Paul starts with a serious note of encouragement, which I think is really, I mean, this again reveals the affirmation of his father's heart because um, it, it reveals the way in which he reviews them. He sees that the Corinthian believers, the Corinthian people are God's people. Uh, and since he saw them that way, um, it, it motivated his desire to address the problems he saw. Um, and I think oftentimes uh, looking at Paul from a father's perspective, as a dad myself, like when I correct my kids, it's not out of anger all the time. Oftentimes it's out of compassion and love for them to live the best version of themselves properly, to live righteously as, as, as children, as they grow up to be a young, young ladies and a young man. And, and my heart is to, uh, raise them properly. Uh, and so Paul, even though he's going to be shifting into some very hard tones and hard conversations, there is the father's heart. So when he initiates a greeting, it's the first initial response is like, hey, I see you, I love you, I care about you, you are God's people, and I'm gonna speak to you as such, and that's my motivation in talking to you. Uh, so that's that's how he opens up the letter with this greeting, affirming who they are, and then he jumps right into the conversation where he sees divisions in the church. Um, and he begins with this issue of, of unity, which is the root of m the majority of their problems. It's unity around the gospel message. Um, when there is disunity about the gospel and hope of Jesus, uh, you see fractures and problems ex begin to show up and exist within the church as it is. Uh, and so the Corinthians in this moment were siding uh, with the people they thought best represented their view of Christianity. Uh, so whether it was Paul or Apollos, uh, well, I, I, I follow so-and-so, right? And this is what Paul is addressing. Paul is re-anchoring who they follow to Jesus, to the, to the hope of Christ and the work that he'd done in his death and resurrection, uh, and then challenges them to live in, in suit. Like the people that uh, they're aligning with are not Jesus. And, and that's what brings unity is Christ himself. Um, and so his desire is to bring them back into unity with Christ. Um, the division tendency uh, is indicative of their immaturity and still needing milk, which is where he says this in, in chapter three, verse one through eight. It says, for my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through, through, through whom you've believed, 
and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So he's challenging their, where they're anchoring their faith. He's challenging them to realign with Christ and not the messengers who brought the gospel. Uh, and and in this, he's also, he, he reemphasizes his heart and his love for them as, as a father in Christ has for them as well. And so he, he tackles over the, f- the first few chapters, the idea of divisions and addresses the, the, that very thing, those very things that are creating division away from unity in the gospel. Uh, and from there, he shifts into, in chapter five through six, he shifts into the, uh, the, the report of sexual morality, uh, as well as le- legal trouble. We see the three different problems that Paul's confronting. One is immorality in the church, uh, where we see a man sleeping with his stepmom. And it's interesting because he even makes a statement, not even pagans would do that. <laughs> and yet you think it's okay. And you welcome the brother in, among your community. And, and to be clear, the, the Greek pagans would do a lot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's not like they're a bunch of like Victorian era, just like, oh, we're gonna, we're very chaste. Yeah, like, no, like they, there's, and that's, like, that's a lot of the sexual morality uh, that, that we find throughout the book that's layered in different conversations. But he, I mean, that's, that's a pretty strong accusation, but also statement by Paul saying, you're acting and approving. And what he means by approving is the simple fact that you've not expelled that brother from among you. And is that you're acting in approval or turning a blind eye to something not even the worldly fleshly people of, of the pagan society would do, the Greeks would do. Uh, and so he calls them out for that. Uh, he calls he calls for the church to remove them from the gatherings. He, he explains the need as followers of Christ to guard the body of Christ and associate with the brothers and sisters who are willing and to disassociate, sorry, with the brothers and sisters who are willing to live in rebellion to God's ways. God's ways. Uh, we see this in, in chapter five, verse nine to 13. It says this, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexual and immoral people. I want to read this because I grew up in church, Evan, I know you did too. Um, and I remember there were different moments where as I was growing up, my I, I would hear something much along these lines, not to associate with sexually more people or not to associate with people that aren't uh, followers of Christ. And I took it as an isolation away from people that don't love Jesus. I took it as a an act a w- to step away, to, to not have relationship, to not be surrounded by people who are sinful. Uh, and, be, and, and it led to this pride and self-righteousness that uh, was was removed from the gospel, was removed from Jesus. And and I think it's important to understand as Paul is, is telling them, remove the sexual immoral brother from among you. We oftentimes take that as a blanket statement for anybody who's sexually immoral, we need to remove from among us. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying here, so I, w- I want to read this and then offer a couple of thoughts before I move on. It says this, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world, which is a very clear point. We are not to disassociate and and not be surrounded by people who need Jesus. I mean, to put it in, in modern day, simple Aaron phrasing, um, it, he's not calling us. Paul is not telling us to isolate away from those who are not connected to church, who have no faith in Christ. The gospel is for those who need Jesus. The gospel is for the world as we know it. But if they're what Paul's referring to, and he says this in, in verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy and a dial, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such person. Now, eating was a big deal back then in ancient times. It showed not just 
a strong relationship, but it was, it was a very vibrant piece. If I were to invite you to come to my house to eat, even today, like especially today, if I invite you to my house, it's because I, I want deep relationship. I want strong relationship with you. Well, remember too, that's a huge point of contention between Peter and Paul because Peter refuses to eat with the mm-hmm. Gentiles because of what a big deal that would be. So it's kind of you know, it's an it's, interesting It's a big there. perception thing too. Um, so he says, don't even eat with such people. He's like, but it's, he, Paul's referring to those within our community of faith who are blatantly rebellious and not willing to change. And I think unrepentant is the key yes. there as well. Because that's what this brother's doing. Mm-hmm. He's sleeping with his stepmom, his dad's wife. It's not his real mom, his dad's wife. He's sleeping with her. Which is a little bit better. Not by sure. much. <laughs> I'm just, sure. Sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll, sure. Um, I'll, I'll just leave that one alone. Uh, but at the end of the day, he's, he's unwilling to change. He's unwilling to repent. He's unwilling to change course, which is a picture of repenting, starting 180 degrees and going the opposite direction. And, but they've allowed him to maintain community. They've, in essence, they've turned a blind, eye, a blind right. eye to it. And this is not, uh, let me speak in practical terms in, in the church. This is not knowing about someone's history or lifestyle or choices and seeing that they're unwilling, quote unquote, to change course. But it's about someone who has professed deep relationship with, and faith with Christ that is confronted with truth, that they're unwilling, then they say, nope, not interested. I'm going to continue to live the way I am and accept God's grace, but not live in truth. Like right. that, that's the tension that we have to understand today. Well, I can't remember what, if it's this one or if it's a different Pauline letter, but the idea of removing someone from fellowship in the church in order that they can be restored. Yes. And that's, and that's a big motive. So I think we kind of, we can lose it where if the idea is, yeah, because the way you could, the way you could interpret this, which I think is wrong is yeah, when you see someone sin who says they're a Christian, but they fail, get them out of here. Yeah. Whereas really what Paul is saying, it's the unrepentant living in sin. And even then the removal from fellowship is with the idea that it will finally kind of shake them awake to what they're doing yeah. and bring them back into into the into the body of Christ. Yeah. The goal is redemption, right. right? The redemptive restoration, the redemptive reconciliation, which is the whole heart of God for his people. Um, and so, so Paul is addressing and just simply say all of that to say, like, it, it's this tension that I think exists in all of us who love Jesus to not turn a blind eye to blatant sin, unrepentant sin, but to love each other well enough to call each other out in love and grace. And here's the thing we don't do well. We don't do it well in grace. We don't do it well in love. We come across and we don't intentionally and strategically establish conversations that are difficult based upon love. Um, so Paul is addressing this sexual immorality. He's, he then talks about the, one of the second problems he addresses is the idea of going to court versus one another for trivial matters. We see this in chapter six, verses one through 11. Uh, and one of the quotes that Town, Townsend Gutierrez, I don't know exactly who said it, um, but this was, I thought was really good to kind of summarize this simple thought. Like Paul was annoyed with the, the believers in the Corinthian church because they were taking each other to court over trivial matters, over things that could have been settled within the body of Christ, within the leadership of, of the church. Uh, and so Townsend Gutierrez said this, if believers will someday be responsible to, ju- to judge both the world and angels, which is an interesting thought yeah. for a completely different time. Uh, but it is, that is that illusion that we see a different, as Christians and believers, we will have a, a seat of authority in future time, referring more to the, for eternal conversations. He says this, then, then believers are certainly more competent to just 
to judge these small affairs also. Uh, so Paul's frustrated. He's he's calling them out for the court and taking each other to court um, because they're, they're, as believers in Christ, we're competent enough to be able to make a decision and judgment based upon small trivial matters. Uh, so he calls out the third thing that he, he addresses in the, in the problems of this section um, is the sexual morality with prostitutes. You know, they, the thought is simply this, I'm no, under, no longer under the law, so everything is permissible. And this is where we get a very well-known passage, at least for me, is the idea that everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And they've made this stance of, well, now I'm not under the law, I can live in freedom. So I can go and sleep around and, and, and live like the culture around me, which is very much big in Corinth. Um, but everything's been, but not everything is beneficial. Right. Paul is calling them to readjust the way they live their lives and the way they filter the choices they make. Uh, so he wraps up that second section and, and of, or I guess the third section of chapter five through 620, addressing sexual morality with prostitutes, saying it's not wise, not good, you shouldn't do it. Um, and then he... Then we launch into this next section, but this is just the beginning uh, where Paul has three issues he's addressing from a Corinthian letter. Uh, and this this chapter seven is a fairly long chapter, um, but it deals with marriage uh, in times of distress, in times of the distress they are facing. Um, it continues on some of the dialogue from six, the end of chapter six, where marriage of sex with prostitutes was bad, then all sex is bad. It's like this, this ridiculous argument. I don't remember what fallacy it is because uh, I didn't really finish the logic course I was a part of. Um, but if sex is bad here, then every sex everywhere is bad, even in marriage. And Paul, Paul just blatantly says, that's not true. God, God created marriage. Sex within marriage is good. That's what God intended. So not all sex is bad. Uh, but sex within marriage between a husband and wife, that's where it's And if, if we all thought that and believed like that, then the human race would have gone extinct long ago. So True statement. So, so he addresses that, that statement that comes up. Uh, he talks about uh, the idea of divorce, um, and he just simply says divorce shouldn't happen. If you're a believer, um, the, the the whole idea is to stay in the state of marriage or relationship status as you are. That's in essence Paul's big picture idea: is if you're single when you met Jesus, stay single because it's better for you to serve Christ without the distraction uh, of a world, uh, an earthly spouse. But if you're married, stay married. Uh, but divorce really shouldn't happen. Um, as, as to the best of your ability, not to let it happen. Uh, be reconciled to, to your to your mate. If if it's a, involving a believer, non believer, don't seek divorce because if you stay there, God may use it to redeem the other. Um, and he, in essence, the goal is to pursue what best allows you to serve God well. Uh, we see in First Corinthians chapter seven, ten through eleven, this picture where Paul says, and this is where he just addresses like divorce isn't good. Don't do it. Try not to like, everything within you. Don't do it. Um, which I think, to be honest with you, even as I read it, was is kind of a harsh statement to read for today, even yeah. because I know, I know people who have gotten divorced. I know there's been legitimate reasons for divorce, marital unfaithfulness. Like that's a biblical reason for divorce. But Paul is suggesting and challenging to have a higher picture of marriage and understand that that divorce should not be on the table. Um, and, and there should be do there should be a willingness to lay down rights and privileges as best you can. Now, here's the thing I'm going to say. I want to say this very carefully. There are conversations to be had about divorce. I'm only addressing what Paul is saying. So what I'm not saying, it's a blanket statement. You should not consider divorce. You should stay in a very bad situation where there's verbal abuse, physical abuse, uh, um, inappropriate things. Like That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is what Paul is talking to in the Corinthian church is they were the Roman law permitted divorce to be initiated without case or cause. So Paul is saying, don't pursue that. Don't allow that to be an option based upon the culture he's a part of. Um, I think there's some really good weight and merit to divorce today. And, and 
uh, dialoguing about divorce today, but I don't think it should be such a quick and easy fix that many, we even carry over into culture today as well. well. And I think our culture today is very similar to Rome in that sense where for sure, yeah, there, there's there, you don't have to give legally, you don't have to give any reason for divorce yeah. really. And then um, I would say the, the majority of marriages that end in divorce do not end for biblical reasons. It's for, it's for other things that I, Paul would hear encourage us to say, no, like you need to work through those as yes. opposed to not. Yes. And that, and that's, I mean, I feel a little bit anxious in even saying the things I said, because what I don't want to do is I don't want it to be misconstrued. I don't want it to be taken as like, well, he says we shouldn't divorce at all. I'm going to have to stay in this sucky situation because I'm being abused or manipulated or uh, there's not, there's nothing. It's not, it's not biblical. It doesn't have a reflection of God and his, his sovereignty in it. And I think that there's, there's definite conversations that if you're navigating a situation and listening to the podcast today and you're navigating situations talk to a leader, talk to a pastor and have some conversations. We can't have those conversations here. I'm just kind of helping provide clarity on what Paul's addressing in the midst of what he's saying. So, um, but yes, I think that there is some tension that we have to legitimately consider divorce. What does it mean? And, and have very biblical counsel, mm. biblically counseled conversations. So I'm gonna leave it at that. If you've got questions or thoughts, send me an email, send us an email so we can continue that dialogue. Um, Paul addresses and says this idea of when it comes to single, like being single, he, he asked the question, should I marry? Paul says point blank, it's better not to get married. Um, be as single as I am. But then he says, if you can't control yourself, if you can't control your urges, your passion, uh, then then get married by all means so you don't have to live under sin by pursuing passions that are not uh, that are not happening between husband and wife between in a marriage conversation. Mm-hmm. Get married, it's fine. And there's nothing wrong. He's not invalidating marriage. Marriage is a great thing. God created it. Paul is just saying, hey, you want to serve God the best you can, marriage is going to distract you. Marriage is going to hinder your ability because you're going to have worldly, earthly, and when I say worldly, I mean earthly, earthly distractions and wanting the best for your spouse as well as to serve God the best. And so there's a there's a, div, a division there too. Well, I think there's, there's this weird pendulum swing that happens from just kind of generation to generation because I think you could go back um, – a few hundred years and you would have to convince people that God can be just as glorified in marriage as he can be in celibacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and today I think you have to do the opposite. <laughs> we have to kind of convince people like, no, like, like singleness is very much a thing that God can call people to. Um, and he can be glorified in the, the celibate life lived yeah. in devotion um, to service just as much as he can be Absolutely. in loving marriage and rearing of children. Both yep. of those things glorify God. Yeah. And so Paul, I mean, Paul takes chapter seven and just addresses marriage as a picture and addresses it from a uh, sex is good in marriage. He addresses it from a divorce filter. He addresses it from a single filter. And at the end of the day, he, his heart is to do what is best in a relationship that enables you to serve the Lord faithfully. And and that's his heart. As a father, that's his heart to communicate to his people. There are not easy conversations by by any stretch, but they're but they're necessary conversations. So, uh, and that's where we'll end it this week, which is really fun to end it on, on those conversations. But uh, we'll end the reading of First Corinthians for this week on chapter seven. Well, we're going to jump into Psalm 112, which is our only Psalm this week and which, next week. Which is a far cry from last week. Yeah, last week we just were like, get them all in. Yeah. Uh, so this week we are finishing up, I, don't, I shouldn't say finishing up, there's more Psalms, but uh, this is going to be one of the wisdom Psalms, meaning it's going to tackle similar themes that we will have seen in Job and Proverbs, which we've already hey, it's read. it's perfect for you. Hey, and then also when we get to Ecclesiastes, some of these are going to sound familiar as well. So it's pretty short, so I'm just going to read it really quick. 
It says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and leads, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry, and he gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So really there, it's just talking about how and again, it's a theme we talked about how we just see it all throughout the wisdom literature is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Blessed is the man who greatly fears the Lord, who delights in his commandments. And then just talking about what does he do? Well, he's going to take care of the poor. His heart is steady. Um, he's going to be lead with generosity. He's going to act with justice. Just really talking about what does the picture of a godly man look like in that world. So yeah, just a a short psalm, really good. It's a really powerful picture for us today, I think, is something yep. that we can aspire to. Agreed. All right. Well, as promised, listeners, we are getting back into questions. So this question came in, and it says this. Psalm 139.8 reminds us God is everywhere. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Does this mean that God is also in hell or that he can see what's going on and is choosing to let it happen? Okay, this is a really good question because I think um, I haven't used this analogy in a long time. So, but one of my favorite ones I ever heard was this idea that um, our faith is kind of like a ship. And as we go through the ocean, we're picking up barnacles and we have to do the work of scraping the barnacles off the bottom of the ship. Otherwise, it's going to be something that we don't even recognize after, you know, thousands of years of going through different cultures and filtering through different things. Um, We have this weird idea that Satan rules hell. And I don't know exactly where that started. Maybe it was, is it Dante with like Inferno? But Oh, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, there's this idea that God rules over, like Yahweh rules over the earth and all of the universe. And then he has given hell to Satan to rule over and to punish the wicked. Um, this is not true. <laughs> so like hell is, hell is Yahweh's just as much as heaven, just as much as earth. Um, and that doesn't mean it is a place of, it is a place of torment. It is a place of punishment. Um, but it is... Just as God's beautiful creation here on earth, even in a fallen world, glorifies him, and just as living in perfect relationship with God in heaven will glorify him, so also does the the punishment of the wicked in hell glorify God, which is a hard thing to wrestle through. Yeah. But um, yeah, and I think there's even this idea that, and I think it, I think it's true that hell is kind of it's a, it's set apart for the punishment of, of Satan and demons, and then as um, as man falls, so also is it kind of set of set apart for that too for those who uh, yeah for those who die apart from the grace of God, from those who yeah. die apart from Christ, for those who are not saved. Um, so by that means, yes, God is in in one sense. I don't. I want to be careful within hell because I believe that hell is a separation from God, but. He is aware, he rules over it, and it is not this situation where, you know, Satan's in charge and he kind of yeah. does what he wants. I mean, you know, it's a, even that picture in like cartoons is what we get. It's like people go down to hell and all of a sudden Satan's like, well, hello there. And Welcome like, to my home. Yeah, exactly. Like, no, this is just, it's it's God's dominion. No, there is nothing in creation that is not God's dominion. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was just going to say too, is like God created it. He created it with purpose and 
And the purpose is not for humanity. The purpose originally was for Satan and his followers, his demons, the, the angels that rejected God, um, which, which is important to understand because if God is the creator, he is over everything. Nothing is outside of his, his, his uh, authority. Uh, and so you've got to go back to the purpose a bit. And whenever I read these questions, I always try and think of the, the, the why behind the what, why ask this question. Um, and it's not to like even question motives. It just is like, if I'm asking this question, what are the things that I'm thinking about? Um, but it's also like, I think of, it, it leads me to the question of like, well, if God is really a good, gracious father, why would he want a place like this for people to be punished and tormented and for for eternity, like have right. this, this space. Um, and I think we've got to be very careful with even where that potentially can lead because it calls into question our understanding of God's holiness. And, and the reality is God is holy and just and gracious and loving and truth-filled. And all of these things are full measures. They're not like he's 80% love, but 20% justice. No, he's, he's fully just. He's fully loving. Mm -hmm. He's fully kind. He's fully truth. Like he's a judge, um, and 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 it should call into our question our understanding of God's authority and God's character because we don't understand it. Right. We have a very finite perspective on it. Because if I'm being true to you, I would hate to have a place where I see my kids punished. Right. For forever, I would hate that. And and God and, and understanding God as a father is only a snapshot into understanding the entirety of who God is that we will never fully know until we stand before him, then I, I, I'm hopeful to think I will be fully enlightened in that moment. And like, God, I understand the weight of your sovereignty. But mm -hmm. even then, I think it's going to be limited because I'm not God. Um, so anyways, all that to say, I think God created this space and this place with purpose, just as he created the earth with purpose for his humanity, for his image to have a place to dwell. Um, and so those who reject God, are there's a place for them too. And God has, has created it. He is sovereign over it. Uh, and, and we don't understand how just and how holy he really is. And so I think that that's a part of the layers of conversation that we have to wrestle with as well. Well, I think that's why, like, not to always go back to it, but I think the ending of Job is so powerful because this is this idea of when he repents, he says, I spoke of things I did not understand, things yeah, too wonderful for me. Absolutely. Um, and I think for a lot of things about God, I, because you're right, I don't understand why. Um, and I think even in scripture, we see that God earnestly desires for all to be saved, but that's not the way it's going to be. I yeah. don't understand why that is. Um, but I, it's because I'm not God. Yep. <laughs> and so, and that, and that's, and so, there, so true. there are some things that as humans, we are not meant to, we're not meant to be a part of, and we're not meant to understand. And yep. I think this is the, the doctrine of hell is kind of one of those things. So. Agreed. Anyway, uh, hopefully that answers your question. And uh, that wraps, a good question. Yeah, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can check out all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.